All right, we got a packed Parsha. It is November 19th, November 20th, Wednesday, Jewish Potpourri. Okay, yeah, with a full class, Baruch Hashem. So I wanted to start talking about, this is the Parsha of Shiduchim, just to give a quick introduction. It talks about Shiduchim, and the Ran asks, famous, famously given over by Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg Zatzal, asked, that Eliezer, as everybody knows, Eliezer was Avraham's great Talmud, great student, and he had a daughter. So the question is, is why did Avram not want to marry his son off to Eliezer's daughter? Eliezer knew the whole Torah, just like Avram Avinu did, and he had taught him. He was the faithful servant. You don't get more faithful than that. So why is it that Avram Avinu didn't just say, hey, instead of putting up through all this Mishigas, then we have a whole Torah portion of uh, Eliezer finding a Shidduch. How about your daughter? Why not that? And the Ran answers, the Ran answers, the reason is, is because when you're going to find a wife for a son, the more important than being a Bas Tamil Chacham, the daughter of a great Torah scholar, is to have good Midos. That's what the Ran answers. And that's what, that's what is needed. The, the yichus is not as important, the, you know, the genealogy, the fact that you come from greatness, a scion of a family, Eliezer, the great, great Eliezer, who it says, uh, Hashem loves the sicha, the conversation of, of the servants of the avos more than the uh, actions of the avos sometimes. So you see, the, the, more than the banim, it says, actually, more than the children. But uh, you see clearly that uh, Eliezer was a great, great man. You would think, oh, it's the, uh, we're in Atlanta. It's the uh, Wittenbergs. So I definitely want to marry my, my daughter off to their progeny. That's for sure. But the answer is, is, is that is important and that is a big thing. But Midos is the number one requirement that we have. And that's why Eliezer's test was in the test of let's see what kind of Midos she has. Let's see if she does Kamilus Chasadim. Interestingly, in yeshivas nowadays, it's very competitive to get in. So Rav, Rav Aaron Leib Steinman, who was just Nifter, he was the great, uh, great rabbi in Israel, he was a big proponent of, of, allowing, of telling yeshivas to accept anybody, no matter who. And he said yeshivas nowadays are, uh, are really, really acting uh, uh, not in correspondence with the Torah because it really all that matters in yeshivas is who your father is. He says... Who, who cares who your father is in yeshiva? He's not the one that, that's learning. He, it's his child. And more so than that, he says, if the yeshivas nowadays, what they do just by checking into who the parents are and who the father is, then Avram would have never made it into yeshiva. His father was Terach. He was an idol worshiper. And Yishmael would have made it into yeshiva. Yishmael, because his father was Avram. So, so obviously lineage only goes so far, but Midos is the true thing. And with that, with that hakdama, with that introduction, I want to talk about an interesting thing, which is Yishmael. The Torah in this week's Parsha, in chapter 25, verse 12 to verse 15, talks about, lists Yishmael's progeny, lists, lists his offspring. It says, Ve'ela told us the last, last, uh, last few psukim of this week's Parsha, Ve'ela told us Yishmael ben Avram. These are the offsprings of Yishmael ben Avram. And it says, these are the children of Yishmael, Nevaios, Kedar, Adbael, Umivsam, Umishma, Duma, Umasa. 
And it goes on. And Elohim B'nai Yishmael, these are their names, their places, of, uh, their places where they lived, yada, yada, yada. So what, what do we need to know about Yishmael for? for? What does it make sense to us? And why does Hashem need to tell us when we know that every single word, according to, uh, according to the Ramban, every single word of the Torah is one of Hashem's names? And they say that when we pray to God, we're speaking to Hashem. And when, he is, uh, when, when we're reading the Torah, Hashem is speaking to us. So what is Hashem telling us by, with, by listening, listing all of Yishmael and all of his offspring? Okay, Yishmael wasn't such a great person. He did tshuva, but what's, uh, what's so great about it? Why do we need to know this? So the answer is, is we need to see the good in everything. And there's even good in evil. In everything in the world that Hashem created and that Hashem has, there is good in the evil. And in Yishmael, Yishmael's greatness is Yishmael helps us relate to God. That's what Yishmael does. That's, that's Yishmael in this week's Parsha. And in, in fact, in fact, Yishmael, more so than that, lets us realize the idea of sacrificing for Hashem. Interesting thing, sacrificing for Hashem. And that is shown in the Gemara. In Sanhedrin 89b, the Talmud says that Yishmael said to Yitzchak, I am greater than you because you were only eight days old when you were circumcised and barely felt the pain, meaning you barely felt it. Eight days old is nothing. I was 13 years old, and this continues nowadays. Arabs are circumcised at 13 and Jews at eight days. That is a great sacrifice. It's very painful. So the, the realm of sacrificing for God is where Yishmael, uh, where they, they succeed in, where they excel in, and something that we have to learn from. It says, in fact, Yishmael's name, when it talks about the naming of Hashem, it says that Malach came down to Hagar, Yishmael's mother, and said that you have to name him Yishmael. Why? Hashem heard your pain and anguish. The pain and anguish of Yishmael's suffering. <laughs> Yishmael brought, he served Hashem through suffering, through all of this, through all of the suffering. In fact, I want to read something. This is an unbelievable thing. The, the, it says here, listen to this. I'm going to quote for you something. You tell me who says this. Everybody hates death, fears death, but only the believers know about life after death and the reward after death. Remind yourself you will face many challenges, but you have to face them and understand it 100%. Obey God and don't fight with yourself when you, where you become weak. And stand fast. God will stand with you those who God will stand with those who stood fast. You should pray. You should fast. You should ask God for guidance. You should ask God for help. Purify your heart and cleanse it from all earthly matters. The time of fun and waste has gone. The time of judgment has arrived. Hence we need to utilize those few hours to ask God for forgiveness. Pray to God to forgive you for all your sins, to allow me to glorify you in every possible way. O oh God, open all doors for me. O oh God, who answers prayers and answers those who, seek you, uh, who ask you. I am asking you for your help. I am asking you for forgiveness. I am asking you to lighten my way. I am asking you to lift the burden I feel. O oh God, you who, who open all doors, please open all doors for me. Open all venues for me. Open all avenues for me. This could be a Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur sermon. 
It's unbelievable. Isn't that unbelievable? You know who said this? Who said this was Mohammed Atta. He, w- he flew the plane that he hijacked in September 11th and went into North World Trade Towers at 33 years old. He was the oldest of all of the hijackers. This is, and it's in the book, In Hijackers Bags, A Call to Planning, Prayer, and Death by, it was in the Washington Post by Bob Woodward, September 28th, 2001, page A01. Now, that is not a, that is not a, uh, uh, a, uh, a, um, <laughs> that's literally like a Yom Kippur sermon. It's unbelievable. And that is not words of somebody that's completely deranged. And we have to understand that obviously we're 100% disagreeing with the way that he put his service of God into action. And there's nothing to say about that, nothing good to say about it at least. However, the service of God through sacrifice is something amazing. I'll share a story. When I was on a plane, when I was on a plane one time, the I was on a Delta flight, and there are a lot of Hasidim on the plane, and I was on the plane. And there are different post schemes who say how to daven on a plane. I personally, this past time, even though I, I, Rab Moshe Feinstein holds that you should daven in your seat, and I like to do that anyways. It gives me more concentration, and you don't have to daven in a minion. Obviously on LL flights and even on Delta flights, I remember one time they, they announced a minion on the flight, the Delta crew one time I was on it when the, they had that Atlanta Tel Aviv route. But, um, but, but I dive in my seat and I was on a plane one time. I was a little upset because there was a lot, there's a decent contingent of Jews and the pilot asked them nicely twice to sit down mm-hmm. and stop davening. So I said, just sit in your seat. But they were, they were Hasidim and they don't, they hold that you have to have a minion. So they do a minion. So, you know, it wasn't the biggest deal in the whole world. And I came to, I came to, uh, I came back to Eretz Yisrael and I talked to a post of mine, uh, one of my rabbanim. And I said, you know, well, how are we, how am I supposed to think about this? So he said to me very interestingly, do you know that if an Arab had gotten up and just bowed down the floor, no one would have said one thing and they don't care what they, anyone says anyways. And people know that. So they don't say anything. So that's a nice message, and it's a nice way to look at things. I'm not saying that I still think you should daven in your seat, and, and those that daven in a minion where the plane allows it, that's fine. I personally daven in my seat, however, hypocritically, because well, I'm in Avelus, I did daven in a minion when I just went to Israel on the plane because um, I wanted to say Kaddish for my father. However, with that said, that, that's something to learn from. Like their, their mysterious nefesh, the self-sacrifice of a person to just daven, not care whatsoever. I'm so self-conscious of, you know, you wear a kippah, you look outwardly Jewish, and we're like, oh my gosh, what do people think of me? So Arabs teach us that that's not really the most important thing, and that's a great thing to think about. Um, not, not only that, but, but uh, the, the great rabbi of Moshe Shapiro was, was many years ago, he was uh, blown away because um, the, there's a, a group of uh, Muslims who, who broke down, I forgot where it was, somewhere in, I don't remember now, but uh, they, the, the biggest Buddha statue in the world, they, they, they destroyed. Yeah. And the reason he was so <laughs> impressed by it, not impressed, he wasn't happy about it, but he, the reason he said is this, this is why God brought Yishmael in the world, is that the, the, the fear, bringing fear of God into the world. And Buddha is known in, in our world as uh, idolatry, so to speak, or the closest thing to it, let's say. And, and, and Yishmael can't stand for that. You know, they can't stand for that and they take action. And whether we agree with the action or not, the idea behind the sacrificing of God is something that we need to incorporate in our lives in the correct way. 
And, and we do realize potential for all of the nations. We do it on Sukkot. We, we sacrifice 70 sacrifices, the Torah tells us, and they represent the 70 nations. And even if they're more than 70, each one is a branch of those 70 roots. And we pray that through these korbanos, all other nations should serve you in the true sense of the word. That's what we're saying. Um, and, and as we know, Yishmael did Teshuvah at the end of his life. Rashi tells us in chapter 25, verse 9, Rashi says, Yitzchak v. Yishmael. They were burying, uh, it says here, that, that Yitzchak and Yishmael uh, buried Avram at the end of this week's parsha in the Marasa Machpela. And he says, it, it mentions Yitzchak before Yishmael. So he said, Mikan sha'as Yishmael tshuva. And, and Yishmael did teshuva, we see from here. And he let Yitzchak walk in front of him. And it's a Gemara. And it's a, it's a Gemara in the Talmud, Baba Basra, page 16b. And we see from there that Yishmael did teshuva. So there are a lot of things that we can learn. And, and even though, you know, the way our society is and kind of the way we are as Jewish people, we, we tend to only think of, uh, you know, a lot of times, especially me living in Israel and just the way the news is and certain things in the news. And if you uh, are more pro-Israel than certain senators and congressmen and this and that. But with that said, there is a great lesson that we can learn in everything in the world. And one of those lessons is, is the total submission to Hashem from, from, you know, from the modern day Arabs. And we do, play, we do pray that the modern Yishmael, which is the Arabs nowadays, join with us in the proper service of Hashem. That's what we ultimately hope. How did he do Teshuvah? How do we know that? Because his whole thing was is that before he was making fun of Yitzchak and he used to throw things at him and he was, uh, and, and the whole idea is is that I am the progenitor of, of Abraham's seed and everything's going to come through me and I'm going to take this uh, whole service of God into it. And by, by at the burial, by Yishmael letting Yitzchak go in front of him to bury Avram, it was a showing of, okay, I, I am admitting that you, Yitzchak, are really the uh, real uh, progenitor of the Jewish people of the, of the world and, and of Avram's children over me. That's what, that's what, yeah, right, right. That's what Rashi says. So, so that's just something to think about. And, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, big feelings that everyone has in this, uh, in this topic and, and nowadays, and to say something in a, uh, in a uh, correct and true way is, is hard without getting emotional over it. But uh, I think that was a nice portrayal of it. Okay, um, that is A, that is one thing. Uh, secondly, I wanted, I wanted to talk about and give two exposés on what happens in the beginning of this week's Parsha based on the service of Hashem. And we'll end it in a, on these two parts. We'll say something uh, hopefully a little interesting and a big Chiddush. And that is, as we said last week, we gave an exposition, an expose on, on Abraham's ten, ten tests. And the last one being Akedas Yitzchak, according to all According to all commentators, it was Akedas Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac. That was his last, uh, his last test. However, the Rabbeinu Yonah in in the Mishnah in uh, Pirkei Avos, chapter five, Mishnah three, says that the last of the ten tests of Avram Avinu was the bearing of Sarah, which I mentioned this week in uh, between Mincha and Mariv, and that. And the question is, how? <laughs> how is that the last of the ten tests? And last week we said maybe it was because it was a non-event. We gave a whole, a whole thing on non-events, but I want to give a different so idea. What, which, which of the other tests did he not consider a test? 
Well, yeah, I got I forgot of, of his 10. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I should. They have the, the Vilna going on this Mishnah brings uh, the whole Machlokas of all the Rishonim and where they differ. Um, with that said, so what? So the question is, is you know where where was the, where's the test in bearing in bearing his wife? Obviously, you're gonna you're gonna do that, and the answer is just to give a different understanding of it, is that Avram Avinu did a test and and the biggest test of his life, and that's Yitzchak, and that was sacrificing Yitzchak, and he passed it, and in challenges sometimes the challenge itself. Um, by by ending a challenge, the cha- that challenge isn't fully over until the aftermath of the challenge occurs. For instance, and I said this before, this between Mincha and Mariv, if a when my wife wants to send me out to the grocery store to get to get like a whole list of things, so that's very challenging for me, <laughs> and and because I have no idea where anything is, and it takes me a long time, and and in that you could feel very great about the fact that you did, I did everything. I got everything she wanted from Kroger. I finally did it, and I come home, and I show her. I passed the test. I did the challenge, and she says, uh, I asked you for the other orange juice, not this one. This one is not the one I wanted. And it's like, then you say to yourself, well, I wish I didn't do it anything then. Thank you. I, I, I didn't even, uh, I shouldn't have done anything. Yeah. So like, and you feel totally shot down. And you, it's like, you know, I did this whole challenge, and it was all for nothing. And that's exactly how Avram Avinu could have felt at the, uh, after the Akedah, after the binding of Isaac. Why? The, the Medrash tells us that when, when Yitzchak was uh, being sacrificed, was on the Mizbeach, the altar, that the, the Satan, the Satan, showed, the angel of death, showed Sarah a picture of this. And Sarah was so overtaken and anguished that she died. That's, that's what we have. So Avram Avinu found out about it when he was bearing his wife and he could have easily said, you know what, based on this, it was all for nothing. It was all for nothing. I would have never in my life sacrificed for Isaac if it meant the, the, my wife's life. Forget this, it was all for nothing. And on that, that's the greatness of the challenge of Avram Avinu is that even though this great challenge resulted in the death of his wife, Still, he said, you know what? I'm not even going to cry so much as a, there's a small chaf in the word that he eulogized, Sar Veliv Kosa. There's a small chaf in the Baal Torim says that that means he didn't cry so much to show that I'm not, I have no regrets on what I did in that challenge. And even though this happened, I regret nothing. And that's an amazing way to pass a challenge. And that's an amazing uh, thesis to understand why the 10th challenge might have been the burial, burial of Sarah after such a great challenge. Why did the Sultan have to show her, the, show her this? Right, so, th- was so cool. it could be that, like the Rabbeinu Yona were saying, is it was the tenth test for it was the tenth test for Avram Avinu. It's hard to understand, but it was the tenth test for yeah. It's a very hard test. Now that is one way to look at it, and that is one way that the uh, the uh, the uh, Mafarshim, the commentators say it. Yes, so just you know, the, I mean, he's a great man. You know, he did so many things. He had such a. I mean, can't you give him some slack? <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's almost like, what's the point? If you know, if you're going to take away, you know, precious things from me, what's the point? 
right? That's the feeling, and that's what he overcame. That was the challenge. That was literally, that was exactly the challenge, and that was exactly how he overcame it, is by saying, like, this is, it's, it's so common. It's literally so common. It's like, you, it just in parenting and everything, you know, it doesn't make a difference how old your kid is. He could be from five to, to 45, and you say, like, I finally did a great parenting thing, or I gave him money, or I did whatever it is. I gave my child money, and he goes out and do, does this. I shouldn't have done anything in the first place. And the answer is that's not true. You do what you can in parenting and you try to do your best and you don't take the result of what came from the challenge and say it was all for naught. And that's what we really learned from, from, from Avram's challenge. It's, a, it's an amazing limud. It's an amazing thing to understand that, that, that you don't give up based on the results of something. You do the best you can in the challenge and the results have nothing to do with how you performed in the challenge. And that's where we're powerless. Yeah, that's where we're powerless. Exactly. Like I went to Kroger, I got everything I could. How did I know she wanted that orange juice? We don't really buy orange juice. juice. I, this is a joke story. <laughs> it, it, it is truthfully never never happened. Actually, I'm the one that actually doesn't forget things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good question. Why is it called? Uh, we said last week. Why is it called? Why is it called Akedas Yitzchak as opposed to Akedas Avram? And uh, we're going to mention this also because it could be the cause of Sarah's death a little bit is that that it's even though the test is obviously much more in one realm, a test in Avram Avinu for self-sacrifice because obviously as every Jewish mother knows and Jewish father knows that I'd rather it be me than my child. That's very normal. So in that realm, it was a humongous challenge uh, from the from the perspective of Avram Avinu. However, from the perspective of Yitzchak, the challenge was amazing. And what we learned from Yitzchak is that Avram Avinu had a direct connection to Hashem. Hashem spoke to Avram and told him everything. So when, uh, when Hashem is speaking to you, that's pretty clear. I'm going to do what God said if I'm a real believer and I have full faith in God. However, Yitzchak only hears from me, Avram Avinu, through an intermediary. That is a lot of Amuna and Bitachon, and that's a whole different schmooze about listening to rabbis and, and uh, listening to the great people in the world and, and, and just having Amuna and Bitachon and that. And that's, uh, that was really where Yitzchak ex- uh, exceeded exceedingly well. And that's why it could be one of the reasons it's called Akedas Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, as opposed to the challenge of Avram. She was had her hand. Yeah, one second. Please, no, we'll, we'll go in order. <laughs> but isn't there this this idea that the tests were times when Abraham had to um, overcome his natural uh, personality? That's what we said last week, right? It was a, something right. illogical that he had to overcome the illogical uh, and idea. And in the case it. of, of the death of Sarah, he surely would have preferred to sit and mourn for 30 days or whatever. But then we see that he overcame that to uh, carry on a negotiation over a piece of property. 
that right. Okay. That's a, that, that is really the unbelievableness of it because just to – that really brings the end of what I'm saying out into action. This is, when my rabbi said this, Rev. Emanuel Bernstein, when he said what I'm saying is from him, and what he said is he said exactly what you said to end it. He said n- not only was it a challenge of the fact that the satan made her die because of the Kedas Yitzchak, but look what I have to do in this. Like it's like it's all paperwork. It's it drive a man crazy, and he didn't get to mourn. It was one thing if he could just bury her and get on with it. But the Torah goes at length, and this is almost a proof to the Rabbeinu Yona that the tenth of 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 Avram's challenges was the bearing of of Yitz, of Sarah because it spends so much time talking about the transaction, and he's dealing with Ephron, and is Ephron really a truthful person? Is he not going to do it? And he dots his eyes and crosses the T's and makes sure everything is glott before he goes through with the whole thing because he knows everything he knows that it might not work out and it's such you know busy work and paperwork when all he wants to do is mourn and he didn't let that overcome him he stayed to the task to the nth degree even though it was dirty work and it was it could have made a person just want to just say i'm done with this i don't want to do this anymore like what uh, you know i just did akedas yitzchak and now i have to do this just let me bury my wife like come on and he didn't do that and that's the lesson there it's an amazing amazing lesson very good point yes where was Avraham when Sarah died, and why? He was at the Akedas Yitzchak. It's literally at the vision of Akedas Yitzchak. He uh, he was he he was there, and at that time she had the the internet hookup from the Satan to the uh, to the Akedas Yitzchak, and she saw everything that was going on. So when she saw him being put on the rack, she 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 died out of uh, according to what we're saying now of anguish. We might say something different now. He yeah. went to Beersheba. Did, did she told him to look and see where they were? The, the giant, I thought. The giant said there's an old man putting a... It could be. I'm not sure. Never heard that story. I'm not, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there's some say a different thing with Sarah. So I'm going to say a different thing. But with, with Abraham, to me the lesson is you have to do what you need to do on the physical part of life. Right. Then you can allow your spiritual part to do what it. That's for do. sure. Also true. That's for sure. Also true. I mean, yeah, for sure. No question. No question. I thought the pasuk said he went to Beersheba. After the after the yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it says here. Um, mm, uh, vayavo, uh, it says Vayavo Avram mi Be'er Sheva. Rashi says Avram ke, after Beersheba he he went to. Uh, to uh to bear Sheva and it says Lisbod Velisar whatever. So it says uh he said he was coming for some reason he went to Bear Sheva, pit stop there, which is the other side of the country. But uh he well it's not the other side, it's actually more south. And then Rashi just says that there's a juxtaposition between the death of Sarah to the Akedah Yitzchak because through the news of the Akeda that uh that her son was going to die, uh and he almost he almost died her soul flew out of her and she died. That's what it says. So yeah, it was a little roundabout way of him going to bury her and eulogize her. Okay, so that's that's one way to understand the story. I heard, a, I just read last night a beautiful other answer about it. And that is the way to understand Sarah, Sarah, Sarah's challenge is like we just said, 
a, a father can be more practical, I guess you could say, and less emotional about about uh, something like this or about all things maybe in certain ways. It depends who the father is, depends who the mother is. But um, but she had a humongous, Sarah had an, a humongous emotional bond to Yitzchak. The whole progeny of the Jewish people is from her and she conceived at 90 years old after trying her whole life and things finally worked out. And, and, you know, some say that she died out of anguish. But the Medjur says, interestingly, and the Medjur says, obviously, like we just said, that, that when Sarah saw the, uh, saw the death of Yitzchak, she died. However, the Medjur also says that that was her turn to die. It was her time, sorry, not turn, time to die. It was exactly the time when she was supposed to die. You know what the problem was? The problem was that she was so connected to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Satan could not get her. It was the Satan's job to take her from the world. Everyone has a lifespan. This was her, the end of her life right now. It's supposed to be her time had come up. And, and the Satan didn't know what to do. I don't know how I'm going to get Sarah because it was just like the story of David HaMelech. If you know the story in the Gemara, the Gemara says by King David, King David also, his time was to die. The Gemara in Shabbos tells us, I think uh, page Lamed 30. And the Gemara says that the Satan couldn't get David because David knew that if he was involved in learning Torah and doing mitzvahs, the Satan couldn't get him. So the Satan tried to get him and he couldn't. So what did the Satan do? The Satan made a wind blow outside for King David and the wind blew and I think a tree rustled and he looked up for a split second and that's, and that's when the Satan got him. I think he fell down the stairs and died. Some, the Gemara says, I forget exactly how it worked, but the Satan had to, had to do something to bother him to, to create a hafsaka, to create a, a, a pause in King David's continuous service to, of God because the Satan can't take a person when he's at the, at the moment of servitude of God. So you're saying that the Satan is the angel of death? Yeah, the angel of death, Satan, same, uh, yeah. Oh, because I never, you know, like, an angel of death could be, you know, under Hashem's, you know, orders. They both are. That's the unbelievable thing. <laughs> I yeah, I know, right. We usually Sutton. think... Growing up as an Anglo, you think like, you know, one is good and one is bad. It's kind of like they're two deities, but, un- but uh, unfortunately, to our dismay. But the truth is everything's under God and God, yeah. you know, everything has a life. Everyone has a lifespan. So, and and so, so it was the same thing with Sarah. Sarah Imenu also had a lifespan. So even though the Satan, uh, the, even though it was her time to go, the Satan, the angel of death, the Malach Amavis, couldn't get her. So what did he do? The obvious thing. The obvious thing was show her a vision of what was going down. Get the internet cables, hook it up, and show her what's going on on Hara Maria, on the future side of the Beis Amikdash, where Yitzchak is laying like a korban, like an offering. But perhaps there's a deeper meaning behind this. And that is to say, this is the only occasion that the Torah records a woman's life. The Torah says here that Sarah lived 137 years. Um, sorry, 127 years. And it's the only place where it ever mentions the lifespan of a, of a female in the Torah. And the, the Torah is coming to tell us that, that Sarah's whole life was full of tzidkis, of righteousness, and tamimus, dick. And it, it, she was completely 
completely a servant of God in every way. In every way. And her job with Avram Avinu was to spread the name of God, to be Mekadesh Shem Shemaim, spread the name and sanctify God's name in everything. Yitzchak Avinu, her progeny, was the next link in this chain for Klal Yisrael. And when Sarah saw that Hashem deemed Yitzchak worthy of being a perfect sacrifice, an Ola Tamima, perfect sacrifice, she understood that she had reached her goal of trans- transmitting this whole ideal of serving God to the fullest to the next generation. And when she saw Yitzchak offering her- himself with his complete heart, she recognized she had accomplished her mission. So it seems that Sarah didn't die of anguish but rather from an intense emotional and spiritual realization of a lofty goal reach. Her soul burst forth from her, fulfilling her life's work. So that's, yeah, check mark. So that's, the, uh, so that's another way to understand, the, the, to understand what happened there. And that's just something for us to know that uh, according to what we're saying now, the whole idea that Sarah stood for was to create Kiddush Hashem in the world. And all she wanted to do, her whole life's mission, was transfer that to the next generation. And Yitzchak was going to be leading that. And the Satan, the Satan won, but the Satan lost. Because in the same vein, that it was his time to take her. And this is exactly it. But she went willingly. This is She had accomplished every single thing that she had ever stood for. And we need to understand that that is exactly what we're going for with the next generation here. That's what we're trying to do by spreading the word of God is to bring these uh, the servitude of God that we have into the whole world like Sarah and into the next generation and generations. Yeah, unbelievable thesis on the... Uh, so two ways to understand... Um, two ways to understand um, the, the whole idea behind... Sarah dying. Is it the 10th test of, of Avram? And she died in anguish and Avram was really, just, it was a test for him. And he was going to bury her even though he had just succeeded in the greatest mission of his life. And the test is to, to handle this and not have yush, which is uh, not to regret everything that he just did at the Akedas Yitzchak. Or is it that, and it still could be part of his challenge, or it, and did, did, but the one question is, is, did Sarah die out of anguish of seeing her son? Or did she really die because her soul burst forth by seeing her son actualize his potential, that potential that was placed within him? from her from when he from when he was from when he was a child so two ways to understand that i think because of their relationship that had to be a challenge to him to live without her and that's how he knew it was time to find the wife for yitzhak right after that because yitzhak would need a a partner yeah for sure yeah totally yeah yeah excellent i think that edged yeah perfect excellent very very good um very good. And with that, we'll say, that's a nice segue to, to, to speak about the fact that it says in this week's Parsha, uh, after Eliezer found a wife for Yitzchak, and that wife was obviously going to be Rivka. So uh, Rivka, he brought her in the tent, and three miracles happened that had, that had been extinguished that happened for his mother. So what transferred, this has never happened before, but the daughter-in-law became like the mother. This is like, uh, this is, <laughs> this is, this is the, uh, the, the, this is the, 
the Jewish mother in this case never had to deal with the daughter-in-law, so you don't know exactly what was gonna, what would have transpired, and nothing. <laughs> but, but uh, so we don't we don't have a precedence for any any relationship between a mother-in-law and a uh, daughter-in-law in, in in Torah at least yet. So, uh, Naomi. Huh? Naomi. Yeah. Naomi. Oh, there you go. That's a great one. Yeah. That's, well, she was really bringing the daughter into the faith and everything also, so it wasn't so, like, you know, kind of, she got to teach her the ropes, and she was... <laughs> As mother-in-law? <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I'm just kidding around. But this is, so, so it says, so what were the three miracles? The three miracles were the cloud that epitomized the clouds of glory, meaning the Shekhinah of Hashem, not the, the, it epitomized the Shekhinah of Hashem, that it was on top of that ohel, that tent, uh, Yitzchak's tent. That was one miracle. The second miracle was that her dough for challah had blessing in it. And the third one was the Shabbos candles lasted from Shabbos to Shabbos. They lasted the whole week. And what was the nature of this miracle? On the one hand, the Maharal says that, that you should know that dough represents a person's physical being. And candles represents the neshama, like the light bulb going off in the cartoon. It represents a person's neshama, a person's spiritual part, the, uh, the spiritual part of a person. And that means that's showing us that Sarah and Rivka epitomized Sarah in the fact that she had the body, i.e. the dough, and the, the uh, neshama, the light, to bring in the cloud, i.e. the Shekhinah, into the house, meaning she represented the totality of, of, uh, of what a person is supposed to be in this world, the physical part of the person and the spiritual part of the person coming together to bring down the Shekhinah. That's one thing. Um, the second thing is, is, is the fact that um, she, she had the, the candles were lit from, from Shabbos to Shabbos. And candles being lit from Shabbos to Shabbos, says the Maharal, always bring peace. Why do candles bring peace? What, what is the idea? What's, yeah, what's, candles bring shalom bias. That's what the Torah says. You're supposed to, you're supposed, the Gemara in Shabbos says you light candles to bring oneg or kavod, it's a machlokas, uh, to the house for, to, bring, to bring peace. Yes? acknowledge whatever it is we're doing in the midst of we're performing and really think about it and, and get connected with a Kaddish Baruch Hu, that in of, it, of itself, I mean, that just brings in a tremendous amount of peace. So to That's for sure, peace. So light the candles, I mean, we ha- it's, that is a moment of cessation. Everything comes to a halt and, we're, and if we're conscious about what we're doing and we're paying attention and we're not doing it so I can get in the kitchen and check the pot so the stuff is well and really take this in, it can make a huge difference in my life. Very nice. Very nice. Beautiful. I think um, of warmth. The warmth is nice. Very nice. The fire. You know, it's very comforting just to watch a fire. Yeah, that's for sure, too. Yeah. I thought it was just a practical, um, no tripping, no, uh, you know, uh, it makes a <laughs> It is that. Yeah. It is that. You're actually the, the most correct, according to the Maral. In that, uh, that, that uh, the one, it's a machlokas why you light candles. There are two reasons. Number one, it should make the table more enjoyable. But the other opinion is, is that you should put lights in every room so that you don't trip. 
So candles, based on what you're saying, the Maharal says that candles illuminate, which create distinction. Boker in Hebrew, the, the root word of boker, morning, when the light comes in, it creates a bikurit. It Now you can distinguish between people. You can see things and you can create boundaries. Light allows people to have it brings peace because we're not all mumble jumbled in the darkness. Now I see where you are and I see where I am and you can create boundaries and that creates peace. You have your part now. I see you because of the light and I have me and we can, we can, we can have peace through drawing distinctions based on light. That's what the Maharal says very deeply. And, and based on that, Rivka epitomized Sar in that realm. It says in the Gemara, that women know the nature of a guest more than the husband. The Gemara in Brachas says that because um, uh, the Isha Shunamis, I think, recognized Elisha that he was a tzaddik. I think that's what it says there in the Gemara in Brachos. And women know the nature of people very, very well. And part of making shalom is, is making distinctions, creating boundaries. And just like Sarah had to throw Yishmael out of the house and Avram Avinu didn't want to do it, but Hashem said, you have to listen to your wife. And that brought peace in the home. So too, Rivka, without telling Yitzchak, threw, threw Esav out, basically, by dressing up Yaakov and giving him the bracha, uh, kind of uh, und- without uh, letting Yitzchak on to her whole plan. And that is really a womanly thing. And that's what the Shabbos candles represent. Shabbos candles bring peace into the home. But sometimes that peace in the home has to be made through making boundaries. And that's what light does. Light creates boundaries and that creates peace. And that's a very important thing for us to know. That the, in Eishas Chayel, we say, Lo balayla neira. She, Her candle doesn't extinguish at night. It's part of Eishas Chayel that we sing Friday nights. And the, the, the simple meaning behind it means a woman works hard into the night. Her candle is not extinguished at night, meaning she's still working. And that's definitely true. Like you said about preparing for Shabbos, that is definitely true. And where Shabbos candles is the time to say, okay, uh, you know, yeah. the, the fire is good. Like there's a humongous fire and the woman is concentrating while, uh, while the house is burning down, making the bracha for, <laughs> for, for the Shabbos candles. Um, that's one meaning. The second and deeper idea behind lo yichbeba that her candle is not extinguished at night, is the fact that she illuminates her home in the midst of challenges and stress and darkness. That's what a woman does, and that's the whole idea by 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 Shabbos candles is to take uh, to to make these distinctions. Because when you make distinctions, that's when that's when peace comes. And what we're doing before Shabbos comes in is we're, we're changing Chol to Kodesh. We are just like Havdalah makes the Kodesh back to Chol, makes the sancti- sanctity back to the mundane. On Friday night when we light the candles, we are, we are being Mavdil. We are separating the mundane to the holy. And we need to make that distinction. And that's what light does. Light makes distinctions. So light brings in a new realm that we have to kind of separate with. So it's a very important thing to uh, to to pick up on that 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 is the that is the real idea behind it. Um, okay, so 
to, to end uh, today, we, just to go over what we've talked about, just so we have everything together, we talked about, first of all, this is the Parsha of Shiduchim, and we said, what, what is the whole idea that, Yit, that Avram didn't want Yitzchak to marry the, kash, the question of the Ran? Why did Avram Avinu not want his son to marry Eliezer's uh, daughter? Because the answer is, uh, it's teaching us that it's more important for a wife to epitomize uh, to, to have good midos as opposed to being the daughter of a Talmud Chacham. And on that, interestingly, the Rabbeinu, the Rabbeinu Bachia says you sh- a man should really look after a woman and really, really make sure she has good midos because he says the, the and you could talk about this and we could, uh, we could, uh, we could definitely uh, give different opinions, I'm sure. However, the Rabbeinu, Bachia, the Rabbeinu Bachia says that the children's midos, their nature, mirrors the mother's nature feminine and masculine, boys and girls, their nature comes from the mother. And he says the, the proof is, he gives a great muscle, a great analogy. He says when you, put a, uh, 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 when, you put, when you pour wine into a vessel, the wine tastes like the vessel it's in. When you, when you pour wine into a barrel, you know, they have wine barrels made out of X and the wine takes on the taste of that barrel. So too, he says, the children from the mother take on the taste, the midos, they take on the taste and the midos of the mother. I don't know if you can answer this, but why did um, the servant, Eli, uh, Eliezer. Eliezer, why didn't he train his daughter and knowing, I mean, he should have known that that, that was... You know, in his mind, he married the master. So, like when he good question, excellent, excellent question. So that's yeah, just, yeah, right. So the answer is, is it's a little bit twofold. This is what the Ran says, but it's a little bit different. And Rashi tells us that Avraham Avinu says that she was that that he was still not Jewish, and because of that, and not that he wasn't Jewish, but he was from uh, Canaan, and the Canaanites were Aror, they were cursed, and whatever that means. Uh, they were cursed at the time, and and the and because of that, it kind of transferred into his daughter also. So she had a pagam, a certain blemish on her, necessarily, and it could be that blemish also created, you know, not the necessarily the best behavior that Avram was looking for, but it was something that they couldn't get over. Um, with that, because of this parsha, it doesn't say Eliezer's name one time in this week's parsha. He was the total servant because of what he did and Rashi even says that very interestingly the story is told twice in this in the Chumash here so Rashi picks up on one word on one word the word Ulai without writing it on the board the word Ulai is basically was saying that maybe you'll want to marry my daughter uh, uh, Eliezer was telling Avram and and that was uh, that was because and that was one time he said the word Ulai. The second time he says the word Ulai, it's missing a vav. And it says Ulai in vowels, but it's written, if you didn't have vowels, it'd be written Eli to me. Meaning the maybe was, will you marry the daughter off to me? But the way that Eliezer acted uh, in complete servitude to Avram Avinu and not putting any of his own, uh, his, his self into the whole mix, because he could have just said, oh, it didn't work out, by the way. The only person left is my daughter, <laughs> you know, sorry. But uh, so he, since he didn't do that, the Torah tells us that he lost this cursed status and he became a Baruch, he became blessed. So it's an amazing... Didn't Rivka come from Sarah's family? 
Didn't Rivka, well, yes, through, uh, so through, that's something. yeah, so that's what he said. So he said he wanted, he wanted, he said there's a place and this is a very deep idea, which I want to talk to that he wanted her to come from a particular place. And this is how I wanted to just to say the last things we, we talked about was, um, uh, we talked about Yishmael and we said there's something we could, there's something great we could learn from Yishmael. And then we talked about two ways to understand the test of Sarah, the test of Avram, two ways to understand how Sarah died. And then we said the, the three mitzvahs that, uh, the three miracles that Rivka brought back into the tent of Yitzchak. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is exactly why he chose a certain place to find Rivka. And that really is a, a, a foundation in the Ma'aral on this fir- the second verse. And the second verse says that Sarah died in Kiryat Arba. Kiryat Arba is Hebron, still called both by both names, in the land of Canaan. And Avram came to eulogize her and cried. Kiryat Arba, Rashi says... Kiryat, why is it called Kiryat Arba? It's really strange. It's the square. Square, it means like the, squ- the, the place of Arba. But normally it'd be like, you know, the place of, uh, uh, place of Jody. You know, you'd say a person's name. So the square of who? But Arba is not really a person's name. Although in, in the, the Maral points out in, I think it's Isaiah, say for Yehoshua, the book of Yehoshua, the person's, really na- the person's name is Arba. But the Torah is telling us something de- deeper, Rashi says. And Rashi says, Al Shem Arba Anakim Shahayusham. It's because it's named the square of Arba, four. Arba is four in Hebrew because of the four giants that live there. And their names are Achiman, Shishai, Talmi, and Avihem. Davarach, Rashi says, on a different vein, the four pairs that are buried there, man and wife, which is Adam and Chava. Avram and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka, Yaakov and Leah. What is this coming to teach us? Says the Maharal that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, puts in to every place in the world, Hashem makes that place, every place has a different level of holiness. And that's how Hashem made it. And, you know, we, we, uh, even in our houses itself, we have different levels of holiness. The bathroom, the place where we can learn Torah, or the place we do more holy things, whatever it is. But every part of the world, and in a microcosm and a macrocosm, in a macro way, epitomize that there are different holy places. Hebron and every place is attached to a spiritual Part and a spiritual element says the Maharal, the lower part, which was called Hebron, Kiryat Arba, had a very high spiritual uh, root to it, and that is why, in the physical and spiritual way, it gave birth to giants. In the physical realm, there were four giants living there. That's relative to the Olam Haza, the natural present-day state of Hebron. It gave birth to giants because it was a giant of a place in the physical realm. But in the spiritual realm, the Ola Mahaba aspect of it, it also gave, gave uh, it was also the, the death place of spiritual giants. Not only physical giants, but spiritual giants. And those are the four pairs. And that's why they had to be buried there, because there's so much spiritual greatness found there. That, and that spiritual greatness from such a high place uh, translated into, into that whole area. And with that said, that there's two things that the Jews, that we Jews believe in. 
And one of those things is nature and one of those things is nurture. And both things are true. Nurture means the midos that Hashem gives a person. Like we talked about mazel, whatever the person is, tall, big, they're a fiery person, calm person, whatever it is. We all have children that probably are on both sides of the spectrum. And and that's one thing. But the other thing is, is where are you living? Who are your surroundings? And and my rabbi one time gave a great shear based on this based on this maral, I believe. And he said that Hashem gave spiritual essence to every place. It's not not uncommon, said my rabbi, which is very interesting, that grapes don't grow in England. England aren't such sensual, you know, over-the-top people, English people, whereas grapes grow in South America and Spain. And if you've ever seen a Spanish soap opera, there can't be somebody crying after, like, it, it has to be at least a minute and a half, someone else has to be crying. They're completely sensual and, and emotional and this and that. And the land, and it doesn't mean the land, but the place is a cause of that. It's also a cause of that. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu made it that way. And people act like the place where they're from. Some people like people from England. Some people don't as much because they don't like their personality. And, you know, if I, like, if I grew up with the Three Stooges, you know, somebody from this area of town won't like him. My wife just uh, took a group of 42 people to Israel and they had this person, Rav Gav Friedman. He's a very, I think he came to Atlanta once, in fact. Uh, but he's a very American humor rabbi type guy. And everyone loved him. And so they took a poll at the end of the trip and everybody was like, yeah, we loved him. And then they had the group from Australia and they hated him. They're like, his humor is terrible. He's not funny at all. We don't get his sense of humor. And, and that was just how it was. And that's because they're from Australia and Australia has its own spiritual essence and spiritual makeup. So we have to understand that, that, you know, in Svat, Tzfat is a place where they make wine. It's a place that has an amazing, amazing view, uh, amazing landscape and view. It is not unheard of that people are very spiritual there. It's a very spiritual-oriented place, and people flock to there that are spiritual. The place has its own spiritual essence. So we have to know that God made different places with different spiritual essences and there are telltale signs that you could tell from the people living there the type of things that grow there the environment and everything about it why it's like that the language spanish language as opposed to german <laughs> you know uh, german language is uh you know is not is a little bit harsher spanish and the romance languages are much more loving and you know so it's this is all of these things are really shown that hakadosh baruch has spiritual essences and they're all great and not one is better than the other but they all do exist and that is part and parcel one of the reasons that hashem said to that avram avinu said to eliezer you have to go to a certain place the place itself also and the family the place and the family both the nature and the nurture brought out the greatness of Rivka obviously she also had her own spiritual essence where she was over, able to overcome all of the bad midos also of the family but there's also a potential for a lot of good there and that potential is latent in all different places and there's more potential in certain places and less and in all, all, in all different areas so it's something that we have to keep in mind that uh, that the, that the place really has a humongous effect, and I learned with a uh, 
a uh, reform rabbi once a week and and he told me you know he's like he's actually somewhat religious actually and he keeps mitzvahs he, he actually learned he learned a long time and he likes to learn torah with me and we learn and we were learning this piece and he's in a very uh, he's in an area with you know there're literally no jews there it's and and he's raising a child that's that's young enough now she's i think has one daughter that's like 2 or 3 years old but he said, you know, it makes me worried. You have this whole community to back you up and, you know, you don't have to be so worried about what's going to be with your kids. And, you you know, your kid can kind of be molded and shaped by the environment of where you are and also by, you know, who she is and the parenting that you give. But what am I going to do here? I said, it's definitely something to think about. <laughs> so it's definitely something to think about unless you're a strong Chabad Shliach or, you know, somebody that's really dedicated his life like Avram and Sarah to, to disseminate the, the idea of Kiddush Hashem. It's very challenging. So with that said, Baruch Hashem, we live in Togo Hills. Baruch Hashem for the Torah here and the people here and the people and the place and the shul and everything else that's involved in making this a very special Jewish community has attributed to the growth of Baruch Hashem, lots of people who are Avdei Hashem, servants of Hashem. And we should continue to make this city great, this small city great, and infuse it with, the, with, with uh, Kiddush Hashem. Amen. Okay.